Welcome to Archibiz Unpacks, a podcast for architecture firm owners and leaders who are looking to grow their impact, lead a profitable business, and learn a thing or two in the process. Hi, I'm Beck Kempster, CEO of Archibiz and your host of Archibiz Unpacks. In case you haven't heard of Archibiz, we provide architects like you with practical business advice and education through online courses and programs, workshops and business coaching and mentoring. Each episode, we sit down with an expert in the architecture industry to bring you simple, actionable insights and strategies to help you lead your practice. Now, let's dig into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that this is part two of our conversation with Ian Motley today. If you haven't listened to part one yet, then we suggest you go back to our episode page and give that one a go first. Enjoy. One of the biggest issues that we see going on um, in practices is the inability to manage the change requests or the inability to charge or, you know, that difficulty in having that conversation or how am I going to have a conversation now with this client that, you know, we're X hours in the red here. Um, How can they go about best navigating changes during the design process with the client? Yeah, so a couple of ways you can do this, really. one is, let's say you're using a lump sum fee, and let's say you're saying my schematic design phase is going to be, I'm picking a round number, $10,000. Once again, you're going to charge $9,997 because human beings respond best to odd numbers. They don't like even numbers. The reason for this is because even numbers seem too convenient. An odd number feels like it comes from a calculation. And as a result, we just respond better to it. So. You know, but for the sake of this argument, I'm going to use a random. So you're charging $10,000. So what you're going to say is, look, I'm giving you a lump sum fee, but I can't, that's not limitless. I've got to limit the amount of changes I'm doing there. So you're going to pick a reasonable number of changes. That might be two. Or if you're working on a large project, it might be four or 10 or whatever. It just depends on the project. And you're going to manage that effectively. So you're going to say to the client, you know, at the first meeting, by the way, this is included. <laughs> Make all the changes, the amendments you want, what you like, sign off on what you don't like, tell us, write on the drawings, write down what we need to change about this this design process because it's all included in the fee. And then the second review meeting, you say, look, by the way, this is the last one that's included. Take your time, ask questions, think about it. What do you like? What do you don't like? Because after this, if we need any more, they are available, but it will be available on an hourly basis or if you charge per meeting on a per meeting basis, whatever it is. So what we're doing here is we're defining what's included in that lump sum fee because we can't just keep working and working, working. And the second thing we're doing is we're keeping the client informed. You don't have the third meeting, the fourth meeting, and the fifth meeting, and then invoice them because human beings hate hate having the power taken away from them. They like to be in the driving seat. They like to have control. So emotionally speaking, it's far better to give them the option before rather than going through with a meeting and afterwards saying, oh, by the way, well, our contract says we have two. We're already at number six, so we've got to invoice you. They won't like that. Their emotions will kick in. You'll end up with a with an argument or a negotiation. Of some sort. So don't do that. You know, let them know beforehand. So, yeah. yeah that, that's... Excellent. Um... Yes, it's about communicating it and, and really managing expectations there. Um, and do you have a view on value-based pricing? Yes. Um, so just in case anyone's not aware of what we mean here, there's, there's kind of two types of pricing. There's cost-based 
kind of value-based, if we speak generally speaking. And, and cost-based, as it sounds, is based on what it actually costs you to the work. work. Value-based is on, based on the value that you offer the client. Value-based is what we're all aiming for. Because if you just work off cost-based, which is like an hourly rate fee, then you end up just being a contractor. You get paid for the hours you work. It's very difficult to build a hugely profitable business. And um, that's why we're all aiming for value-based. So I don't know if I'm answering the question, but value-based is my goal. With every client we work with, we want to shoot for value-based. Okay, excellent. Um, in previous um, offices I've worked at, one thing I've uh, just, in my own mind, this question is the frequency of invoicing. So um, practice I worked for had a, um, a regime of invoicing every two weeks, um, no matter what the, to, on an hourly rates or a, um, um, a fee with a range, like an, a lower and an upper range, it could be, you know, two to $5,000, for example. Yeah. My concern when those invoices went out, I was thinking, oh, gee, if it was me being the client, I don't know what I'm going to be receiving every couple of weeks. And I had the situation where I was able to, um, with a group, engage an architect um, to do a project um, as an investment thing. And we had lump sums for each stage. So concept design, design development, yeah. big lump sums. But I felt personally more comfortable having that money set aside for those big chunks as opposed to just these dribbles of, you know, what seemed like small amounts of money. But I think if they're coming in every couple of weeks, it'd be a little bit disturbing. So what's better? Big lump sums. Um, I suppose that's going back to what you've already been discussing. But maybe my question's around frequency of invoicing then. Okay. Yeah, good question. So you're saying what, what better, little and often or occasionally but bigger? Um, yeah, it's, it's a fine line to walk. So what we're trying to do is, is the most important thing as a business is we want to have cash flow. Cash flow is the lifeblood of the, blood of the business. Okay, without cash flow, we're going to get into trouble. And when we get into trouble, we end up making bad decisions because of the pressure to bring money into the business causes us to negotiate our fees down, to accept things we wouldn't usually accept. So the, the, the big picture here is, you know, we, we need to have cash flow. So the first question I would ask if I were working as a consultant to your firm is I'd say, well, invoicing every two weeks, how is that working for you? Does it work? Does it not work? Do you ask for money up front? So do you ask for a deposit or a retainer or a mobilization payment or something like that? You know, and how are clients responding to this? Um, so th these are the general questions I would ask. Now, to answer your questions, so the first step is we need to get make sure we've got cash flow. The second thing is, you know, as human beings, we don't like invoices. Nobody likes invoices. So, you know, the, the less we can provide, typically the better, but we won't know if there's a problem on the project until we invoice the client, because it's the invoice that will trigger there's a problem. So once again, it's a fine line to balance. I would like to learn a little bit more about your company and how it's working for you, because if I could get two weeks, I prefer it four weeks. So I would only change from two to four if I felt like it was really causing problems. Does that, does that help in any way? No, that's good. Another, I've been discussing this with a friend of mine who's a lawyer and she was talking about how they um, set up their fee proposals with a retainer and it's um, money held in trust and it's 
pretty typical, I think, in legal work. Is anything like that done in, in, in architecture in your experience? And is that something worth pursuing? So there's, there's many ways of getting something up front. Um, so lawyers ask for a retainer. Essentially, a retainer is we're going to take a chunk of money because there's going to be invoices coming and we want to make sure we've got some money on record because you might not pay the invoices otherwise, right? But that's not the only way of doing it. Architects can do that. But there could be a, a deposit, there could be a retainer, there could be what we call a mobilization payment, um, or there could be what we call a commencement payment. Now, I don't really mind which one of these my clients do as long as they do one of them. Um, and there's legal ramifications to each one, okay? And the reason I say I don't mind which one as long as they do one is because it's really important that you get a financial commitment from the client. The client doesn't care what you do when they're not paying for it. It's not till they have to pay for something that they focus on what you're actually doing. And typically, architectural contracts, typically or traditionally, require you as the design professional, typically you have to work for 30 days, then you invoice, and if you're lucky, you get paid in 30 days. So typically, you're working for 60 days at risk. 60 days is a massive amount of time for anyone to be working at risk. So I don't recommend doing that because you're not going to know if there's a problem until 60 days out. And once you realize there's a problem, you've already spent the money on labor. You've already invested the time. You've already drawn up the conceptual design or whatever it is, schematic design. And then you realize there's a problem. And once again, you're, you're in trouble. And then obviously that leads you to make bad decisions. So what we recommend is getting something at the start. And once again, this could be a deposit, a retainer, conventional payment, mobilization payment, doesn't matter as long as you're getting something from the client. Oh. Again, um, any tips for a tender situation? I um, should you go low on the price, but with lots of exclusions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't like answering this in public, but yes, essentially, um, you put me in a position that you know when you're in a tender, you've been told exactly how to fill everything out. So when I used to work on these big tenders for airports and convention centers and you know all that sort of thing, the first thing we would do is try and build the best team for the project. So on a lot of tenders, you have to have everyone involved, the architect, the engineer, the, the, the sustainability consultants and so forth. So the first thing, like we're aiming for an airport project, we bring in the best team with airport experience. So that's the first thing. But that doesn't answer the question. I'm trying to avoid it, if I'm honest. And the truth is, is that, yeah, it, you know, to, to really get your fist in the door, it helps to be an affordable fee on a tender. Um, and then what we would like to do is when they say any other information, we like to fill that out and show them how they can benefit from, from hiring us. Um, so, yeah, don't take that as my message to always lowball it, because as an industry, we've really got to change this 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 mentality to keep lowballing stuff um, and basing things on fee. We've really got to change our mindset to start demonstrating the value that we bring to the projects. Um, because otherwise, the clients, you know, if we focus on the fee, the clients will focus on the fee. They're already focused on the fee, uh, and then we'll all end up um, in a race to the bottom. That's not what we want to do. So we want to focus on how can we demonstrate value that we bring to the project. Um, and let's focus on that and the fee as a part of it. That's a, that's a great segue to a clarifying question that John has asked here, um, and that is that value-based um, comes back to a percentage of the fees, doesn't it? Uh, no. Okay. It doesn't have to. It, 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 it can. 
Um, by percentage of the fees, I think what you're saying is value base comes back to percentage of construction budget. Um, look, the, the hard truth is a lot of your clients, I think, depends who you work for, a lot of clients are not interested in design, which is why they've hired you. As an example, a commercial client doesn't care what the project looks like. What they care about is that the project makes money. They are building for profits. You need to design to make them money, right? So that's the way, that's the way to win a commercial client over. You show them how you make them money. Okay, that, that's the strategy behind it. Residential clients, they're building for personal taste, so it's a whole different animal. They are driven by their emotions. They want to impress friends and family. They want to feel successful in their life, and the house will allow them to do that. So they are building for design. They are very design-oriented. So the question then becomes, how do you tap into those emotions and get them to pay more for the design? I don't know if that makes sense for everyone, but hopefully it does. Yeah, that's a that's a really valuable nugget there. Thanks, Ian. Um, how does that then impact the exclusivity portrayal if you're starting low? I think that's a, is that back to the tender question? Um, yeah, that was sort of coming from if you're starting at a low point and back to the, um, what you were saying before, that if you're actually the highest figure, they'll generally come back to you and then negotiate. How, I suppose, how do, where is it better to start? Is it better to start high in the hope that they'll come back to you and they'll see you as more exclusive, or is it better to actually start lower and then add to it through your exclusions? Well, could you give me, uh, you don't mind, if you could give me an example of a project. What sort of what sort of project? Commercial, residential? Uh, residential for us. Yeah. Okay, a residential project. So this is, for lack of a better description, it's a husband and wife that want to build a brand new home. Is that what we're talking about? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> okay. So if I were working with you, if I were your consultant, right, and you said, okay, um, I don't know if you are, but I'm just making this up. Let's say you're a Melbourne-based firm. You've got 10 years of, of, of experience. You've won some awards with the Australian Institute of Architects or, or other things. You've got some publications under your belt, okay? So you're going in, but you know that they're soliciting proposals from other people, right? Um highly likely with a preferred but they will be going to other people yeah. if the first round doesn't work out so are they asking you to fill out a pro forma like do they give you a document say fill this out and submit and or do you have complete control we have we have a pro forma that we give to the client no that's the brief but the brief. well no we're, we're providing all the information yeah so you have complete control over what they get yeah okay and what makes you think um, and if these are, lack of better description, if these are horrible questions, you don't have to answer them. But these are typical <laughs> things we would ask. So yeah. what makes you think you're the preferred ben, uh, the preferred sales uh, design service provider? Are uh, they telling us that? Okay. And why do you think they might tell you that? Um, <laughs> I, well, in the first conversation that we're having with them, we're very upfront about our um, how many projects we take on per year and that we're in a very nice way we're saying we're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing us to see if it's the right fit. So I think okay. them saying that we're the preferred is probably their way of saying 
we're very interested in working with you. We're not trying to waste your time just by, um, yeah, coming to you for the sake of getting the fee. Okay. So there's a huge amount of things to unpack here. But as human beings, they're feeling slightly guilty. We're not wasting your time. (laughs) You're our preferred preferred service provider. We really want to work with you. These are the things we always hear, right? And your automatic response is, great, well, this this is our project to lose. So we've just got to find the right fee. Yeah. Right? But it's not about that. It's not about finding the right fee. If you can address their emotions, they will pay more. If you can make them, a lack of a better description, if you can make them happy, they will pay a massive premium. So the question is, can you make them happy, right? So as an, as an example, going back to the car scenario, right? Why don't we buy the basic model? It does everything we need it to do. Nowadays, the basic model is quite high tech because we want to feel different. We want to feel exclusive. We want to feel better than the average person in society. So we want something unique, right? So you might say to yourself, Okay, we're preferred vendor. We're going to charge them. I'm just making up a number. We're going to put a proposal together, 10%. And you're thinking, that's a, that's a bargain. Because look at our experience, look at the awards we want and everything else. All the client sees is a number. They don't know if that's good or that bad. They don't know if it's good or bad until they can compare it to one of your competitors. So what they do is inevitably, they've told you they want to work with you, but then they go and solicit proposals from your competitors, right? Then what happens? Well, maybe they get a fee of 8% on the table. Maybe they get a fee of 6%. And their emotions change, right? They're like, wow, we could get this done for 6%. I wonder if these guys that we want to work with would negotiate. No harm in trying, right? So they come back to you and say, look, there's a firm down the road that's willing to do this for 6%. Would you like to reconsider? Because we really want to work with you guys. You're our favorites. In fact, we could start next week if you could help us out with the fee. Now, emotionally, all your alarm bells are going off. You're like, this is our project. And my God, we could get it signed up. We could have a new project next week. Let's get it done. Let's get it done. We want it, right? So you're saying to them, look, I'm sure there's something we can do. Then you go back, you pretend to look at your numbers and everything else, but you already know what you're going to do. You already know. You pretend to look at your numbers. You give it a bit of a time, a bit of space. You come back and say, I'll tell you what, we could take 10% off the fee. How does that sound? So let's just say you're a 10% to start with. Now you've taken 10% off, so you're down at 9%. And they're thinking, you're thinking, yourself, well, I've just done a brilliant thing. This is going to secure the project for me. They're now going to sign me up, right? Because I've just given them 10% discount. But emotionally, they're sitting there thinking, wow, they just took 10% off their fee. I wonder how much fluff is in that fee. I wonder if we push them, how much further they might go. So then they go back to the 6% offer and they look at your 9% and they're like, I don't know, 6% of, it could be a million dollar project, right? No, it's a lot of money. Versus 9%, there's a lot of difference there. So they come back to you and say, look, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Look, we really want to work with you guys. We really want to get this thing signed up. Is there any way you could sharpen your pencil just a little bit more? Is there anything else you could do? And by now, right, emotionally speaking, you've met with them. Well, first of all, you had a phone call with them. That took an hour. Then you met with them on site. If we're all on if we're, in, in all honesty, that's it longer than we want it because it takes half an hour to drive out or take the train or whatever it is. 
tube or whatever to get to them. Then when you meet anyone in public, you know, pre-COVID or post-COVID, whenever you meet anyone in public, you can't go and meet them for 20 minutes and leave. They'll be disappointed. You've got to spend at least an hour. But in all honesty, they're going to probably make you a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, or if it's in the afternoon, they might crack over a bottle of wine. They're going to do something like that. You're going to walk the project and talk about this, that, new methods. It's going to take at least two hours, if we're honest, and probably longer, because you're going to want to show them your portfolio. You can be work. Why? Because you're extremely proud of this. You're going to flick through it and everything up. So it's going to take two hours. So it's a half an hour there, two hours there, half an hour back. You've invested three hours. Now, three hours is basically a morning. It's an afternoon and an evening. So you don't come back to work and jump straight into work. You have to talk to your, your colleagues or somebody else. I just have this great meeting, blah, blah, blah. So in all, inevitably, it's going to be about four hours of time. So you had an hour on the phone with them. You had a four-hour meeting. Then you went to write the proposal. Now, we all think we can probably write a proposal in about an hour. In fact, whenever I ask clients I work with, they're like, well, I've got a 10 day I can fit that. It takes me about an hour. Now, there's, the, there's a research study that comes from the UK um, that it says that the average employee is productive for two hours and I think 25 minutes per day. So in any eight-hour day, they're productive for about two and a half hours approximately. And what they're saying is that most of the day is spent having a coffee, going to the bathroom, attending meetings, answering phone calls or replying to emails or on social media. So the actual productivity time is very limited. So when somebody says they can write a fee proposal in about an hour, I usually give them about four hours to do it because they're going to have to write it. They're going to have to talk to somebody about it. They're going to have to think about it. Then they're going to have to package it in an email. Then they're going to have to send it off. And there's a lot at stake when they send it off. So they're going to be very worried about it. So that's going to take them time to actually hit the send button. So look, if we, if we go back, we've got an hour on the phone call. We've got basically four hours to go and meet them. We've got four hours to write a proposal. Then we get involved in the negotiation process. So when you're in that negotiation process, you're already committed for about 10 hours. So if you don't win this client, if you don't win this project, you're framing the loss of all this time you have committed with them. So that makes you negotiate subconsciously. You're going to negotiate that much more aggressively. So you start off taking it by 10%, and they come back, well, you know, can you sharpen your pencil a little bit more? You're like, well, I can't lose the project. I've got 10 hours invested now. You don't think that logically. You think it subconsciously. So then you're like, well, I'm sure there's something we could do. So you go back again, scratch your head, and take maybe another 5% off. And then later on, there's another 2%. And then there's 1%. Then you throw them something else. And before you know where you are, you're down at 6%. You get everything signed up, and you have this bittersweet taste of, wow, we just want a project. Did we really win it? Because I'm not sure we can do it for the fee that we've now agreed. What actually happened there? And what happened was you got caught up in the whole emotions of the whole process. So look, we, we don't recommend that approach. That's what we all do, and that's what you're looking for. You know, how much should we charge? What should we do? But what we recommend is, is testing the water to start with. Before we ever invest in this client, before we do anything, let's use the premium pricing model. Let's see where they're at. How much do they really want to work with us? So we try the premium model. If the premium pricing model works, we end up doing a feasibility study. The next thing we do is we offer them what's, what economists call second and third degree price discrimination. We offer them options. Some people refer to this as choice architecture. We design different options. So if they want a 6% service, we've got one. If they want to pay 10%, we've got one. And they get to see the benefits. They get to feel better. And when you do that, they can't come back and say, look, there's a friend down the road that's willing to do this. 
yeah, I've got a 6%. It's there if you would like it. You know, but we don't write the proposal until they've done the feasibility. Why? Because it's going to take us 10 hours to write a proposal, send it to the client, negotiate with the client. We don't want to invest 10 hours in a client. We want them to invest in us. And we want them to pay us to write that proposal because it's painful writing a proposal. And that's what that pre-designed service is going to do. It's going to filter out the tire kickers from the serious contenders. So that would be my recommendation. That's fantastic. I think we've all just seen uh, Ian's expertise in action there. Um, <laughs> thanks, Ian, for, for that. I hope that's beneficial, Kat and Dan. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, Ian, uh, you know, we've, we've, everyone's just seen what you can bring to the table um, in action there. If people want to learn more or get more help in um, writing and presenting their fee proposals, what should they do? Good question. <laughs> Good question. What should they do? Essentially, there's three, way, three ways we help clients like yourselves. One, we can train you. We can train you on the psychology of how to write winning fee proposals. The training is really important because it shows you not what to do, but why, why you should do it. It shows you the emotions behind the situation. So that's one thing we can do. The second thing we can do is we can help improve your mindset. This sounds like a stupid thing to say. Half the thing that is holding you back, or maybe 99% of what's holding you back, is your emotions, it's your confidence level, it's your ability to realize that you can actually make more money. And typically, if you sit, if you're self-employed or you work in a partnership and there's two or maybe three of you sat in the office every single day, you will be the average of those three people. You will think and believe the same thing about fees. Those fees will be limited by your life experiences. If you want to change that world, you need to hear from other people. You need to change your peer group. You need to hear from other architects that are killing it. You need to hear from architects that charge for pre-designed service and don't visit a client until they've been paid. And you want to know how they do it, when they do it, and what they do, and how it's successful for them. And when you hear that, there's going to be two things that will happen. One, you'll be gutted that you haven't been doing these things in the past, and you'll think about all the money you've left on the table. And two, that anger, that, that anger from not doing it, will en enrage you to actually go ahead and do it. So that's the second thing. It's the mindset. We can help you with the mindset. And that's part of our, like a, we have little group sessions where we basically go around and we talk about what we're doing and how it's working for us. And in the process, we talk about things like, you know, hourly charge out rates. Don't charge that. That's pathetic. You've trained for seven years. Okay. You've got, you know, five, 10, 15 years of project experience under your belt. Why on earth are you going to meet the client at their site free of charge? Why would you do that? A doctor doesn't do it. An accountant doesn't do it. A lawyer would not do it. So why are you as a fully qualified professional doing that? And when you hear other people around you saying, yeah, I don't do that anymore. I used to do that. I don't do it anymore. And it's working for me now. That will change your mindset. So that's the second thing. You can change your mindset. Um, the third thing is we can work one-on-one -on -one with you. If you'd like, we can review your proposal. We check it against 15 different things. There's 15 things, 15 criteria that successful fee proposals have in common. Okay, so we can review your proposal. We'll write your report. We'll get on a Zoom call. We'll talk you through each one and we'll drill it into you. 
until you understand that your clients are not making decisions based on the price you offer. They will pay more if you give them a valid reason to pay more. The problem is, is you're including everything, you're focusing on the fee, and that's not the way human beings respond. So those are the three ways. We can train you, we can work on your mindset and our group sessions, or we can actually work one-on-one with you um, and review your proposals and the way you do things. Awesome. Thanks, Ian. I hope everyone's uh, feeling a little bit of that rage right now and takes that away and does something with it in relation to their fee proposals. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's quite late there, Ian, um, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning into today's episode. If you loved what you heard today, share this episode with a friend, give us a five-star review, or even leave a comment. You can follow us on Instagram at HQ. And find us on LinkedIn and Facebook also. Oh, and if you want more of Archibiz, make sure you download our free eight-step roadmap for finding more and better clients. You can find the link for that in the show notes. See you next time.